Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One. Co-host also, Mike, is here. And Oscar Race Checkpoint is here as well. We are reacting to the first reactions for The Little Mermaid. We will talk about all the Disney live-action, the history of the Disney live-action remakes, rather. We have big news about a uh, very prominent actress leaving the industry for good and for good reason. Uh, Kind of shocking news there. And, of course, we'll touch on the writer's strike as well as some contender trailers. A lot of news chock-full, as it always is, in these ORCs, Michael. Yeah, it's a schmattering with a with an H in the word, uh, and I, I like these kinds of episodes. It almost it almost calls back to it doesn't almost it calls back to our MMO Weekly days, mm-hmm. and there's still a lot of Oscar adjacent relevant information in here, certainly with the writer strike. So so yeah, let's dive in, and we'll begin with the Little Mermaid first reactions. There was a heap of praise for Halle Bailey and Melissa McCarthy in particular for their performances. There was a lot of praise for several great songs and the performances therein from Bailey and McCarthy in particular again, but apparently. Apparently, as we've seen with the trailers, the VFX is ass, and the underwater <laughs> effects. Considering mermaids don't have asses, I'm pretty. Yeah, I think the the underwater effects are quote unquote ass, mm. and then <laughs> the takes on the movie overall is that. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of the original. It's a very close remake, and. The highs probably outweigh the lows, but was this necessary? So it's it's a strange set of initial reactions, Michael, because we usually talk about the parade, the initial parade from the punditry or from the people that the studios choose to see their first, mm. you know, the, to see the film first and foremost, because they want those reactions to be positive. So typically it's a huge roar and then things come back to the mean but we kind of have a mean and a mid set of reactions here for the little mermaid yeah mid is kind of how these disney live action remakes have been received critically by and large over the last decade or so Mm. uh if you're live and die by the tomato meter then since 2010's alice in wonderland remake only three of these live action remakes have scores of 80 percent or higher on the site and each of those three which are the jungle book peach dragon and cinderella Mm. came out in either 2015 or 2016 uh there's nearly twice as many of these remakes with scores under 60 percent in that time frame eight as there are those with certified fresh scores uh, five of those. So I wanted to harken back to when Chris Gore came on our show because we're we're wondering why, when this is a 50-50 proposition in terms of quality, why would Disney keep doing this, keep remaking these mm. in a quote-unquote live action? Well, Chris Gore said, you know, one of the major reasons is that they kind of have to re-up the licensing, and that's very important for Disney to re-license their stories Obviously, that's that is part of it. However, I also want to I want to draw attention to the fact that these things are ultimately profitable. Now, some of them are profitable and you're going to get into that in a second. But the the sum of them that the public does support make them a lot of money. 
Yeah, we're going to go, uh, you know, devil's advocate here. I'm going to play the devil. You're going to play the angel in terms of why Disney does these things because the devil side of this is saying, well, you know, you, you find yourself thinking by and large, well, who cares about the critic scores and how these are received because all that matters is that they're cash, car, cash cows. Like you said, the ones that hits are huge cash cows, but the hit rate of those that hit are, are kind of surprising, at least to me. Now, the, the, the cash cows are the ones that stick out. Of the 52 movies that we've had in history to cross the $1 billion mark at the worldwide box office, four of those have been from these live-action remakes. None of those four include, there are also two Pirates movies, which also crossed the billion-dollar mark, or The Jungle Book, which finished at $967 million. So you have, essentially, if you want to count those, seven of the 52 movies... 53 since Jungle Book didn't cross a billion, but about seven of those live-action remakes crossing the billion-dollar mark. But the hit rate as to which movies do is about 50-50 or a little worse. Depend. I mean, it's, it's arguable as to what you want to count because we have the pandemic in there and what was a theatrical-only release, what wasn't, etc., where you had the cutoff date. But it's about 50-50 as to how many of these live-action remakes have done better than 3-1 to one in terms of gross profit worldwide versus production budget. And, and as you mentioned a couple times, it's tentpole economics uh, in yeah. full full view here. And I actually calculated, uh, the, you know, using the simple formula of budget times three and, and taking that and subtracting it uh, from the ultimate gross of the film, at least in the box office. That gets us a kind of a cursory understanding of the economics here. These are macroeconomics. Obviously, we are not incorporating the marketing of the film that could sometimes right. be hundreds of millions of dollars that's often the case especially for disney it probably is yeah but we're not counting we're not counting the merchandising the theme park advertising mm -hmm. all of the you know the the brand building re-upping the story rights and what's that what that is worth to disney reintroducing the stories to a next generation i mean these live action remakes remakes they've been a pillar to, to the bob Iger legacy for a reason they are working and i think the major reason that they are working is because of temple economics we look at beauty and the beast making 783 million dollars of profit based on the simple formula aladdin mm -hmm. making 501 the lion king making 876 yes there are some money losers like alice through the looking glass i calculated that lost 211 like Dumbo, that I calculated lost 153. And yes, if you include like the Mulan loss based on a $200 million budget and only did $69 million in grosses during the, the middle of the pandemic, even though mm -hmm. it was a day and date, even if you count that loss of $531 million, which I don't think you should, but fine, the losses there you know taken from uh, you know subtracted from the gains it still equals 2.209 billion in profits michael so this is a very profitable 20 film set for yeah. disney over the last 15 years and you would think the little mermaid is going to be one of the on the tentpole side of this. I would think everyone's going to, you know, bring yes. their kids to see this this summer. And we've been on record numerous times thinking this has a chance to compete for highest box office of the uh, year 2023. Uh, all you reading all those stats and numbers and Disney profits did for me is make me furious at how they're raising the prices of their streaming services soon again and how they're cutting 11,000 or already did cut 11,000 jobs and 
Disney has money to burn. I don't understand it, but nonetheless, okay, yes, they're doing these because they are big, big money makers, and we imagine the Little Mermaid will join the line of the biggest of the big, big money makers of these live action remakes. Doesn't escape the fact that, again, in terms of quality of picture, not huge hits. Right. I mean, it's it's a strange, it's a strange situation where the public cannot help themselves but support these (laughs) these films because they've grown up loving the stories and they reintroduce Mm -hmm. them to their kids we reintroduce them to our to our kids you've reintroduced the lion king to your niece and nephew and you guys still had overall a good time at the movies when you did that 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 is the magic of it right i mean that's at least when you're in the theater there and you see the if you're with a, a, a child, preferably one that's related to you, not a strange one, uh, and you see the magic in their eyes, yeah, that's you know that's it makes the viewing experience much much more palatable. So that's that's what's happening here. Uh, it's it's frustrating to us, and and it's and it's frustrating to the to the critics doing the critic thing because mm-hmm. these are these are middle of the road films at best in many cases. Now that being said, I've enjoyed some of them, like the Aladdin. Remake, I thought brought a lot of new stuff to the table uh, that I that I liked quite a bit with the genie storyline and who played the genie in that? <laughs> I, I tell you, I've always been a fan of his. So th- there's some of these that offer more. Like the Maleficent is a fairly new take on that villain character, the Malefic- Maleficent duo, um, and that's part of the, the the odd math with this too. Is like, what is a, like? Is the Christopher Robin movie considered a live action remake just because the Pooh characters appear in it, mm-hmm. but it's not an actual Winnie the Pooh story? I mean, like it's it's you know where do you draw the line with this? Maleficent, yeah, obviously it's a character from Sleeping Beauty, but it's not like Sleeping Beauty was given the live action remake treatment. Only that character was, and they had to flush out an entirely new backstory for just that character. So there is, you know, it's it's tough to, no matter how negative you want to be about these, to take these all in a negative light because they are. It's a mixed bag. Like some of these are truly original stories. They're just lumped in with live action remakes. And I gotta say about the the Little Mermaid, that's one of my absolute favorite stories. Always has mm-hmm. been. It's one of my first memories of going to the movies with my family. I remember uh, going to your Seymour Theater, Michael, back when the entertainment uh, cinema was there. Out. Yeah, yeah, w- was still alive and well, and going with my grandpa and my little brother was so teeny tiny that my grandpa had to hold the seat down for <laughs> my brother John not to get smushed up like a folding chair. Because <laughs> well, was... thankfully he grew out of that problem rapidly. <laughs> yes, we all did, and uh, we're all just boxes as men. We're, bo- we're but if you guys have never seen me, I'm just short, stocky. I'm a box of a man, yeah. and so is my whole family. Anyway, uh, same here. And I and I, yeah, there's nothing I could do about it. Uh, you, there's a round face syndrome. Well, I'm box. I'm basically a fun co pop doll. There's no. <laughs> There's no mystery as to why I have chosen my eventual YouTube background to be like 40 Funko Pops, and I've been it buying inevitable. them. Inevitable, yeah. Destiny, Destiny. All right, we uh, we got a break to to get into a couple serious stories here. The industry news has a has a few, I guess, storylines that we've been covering for the longest time. Adele Anel. A French actress, and in my opinion, one of the very best actresses on the planet, one of the very best actors that I've ever seen, has retired officially Crazy. now in protest of the French film industry's support of quote-unquote sexual aggressors like Roman Polanski. She made a public announcement of her retirement on Tuesday of this week, 
And look, I'm, I want to cover her story right now for a lot of reasons, but over the past six years, she's put up some great performances in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Deerskin, 120 BPM, and The Unknown Girl. She's also been a great young actor in the industry with films like Water Lilies. Uh, that, was, that made a huge impact on me when I was growing up. Uh, we've also covered her story from a few years ago in 2020 because she walked out of the 2020 Caesar Awards mm. after Roman Polanski won for Best Director. She shouted, shame at the stage and stormed out of the ceremony. And Michael, I got a long quote here about what she mm. said afterwards. I don't make films anymore because of political reasons, Anel said at the time. This was in 2020 after the storm out. Quote, because the film industry is absolutely reactionary, racist, and patriarchal. We are mistaken if we say that the powerful are of goodwill, that the world is indeed moving in the right direction under their good and sometimes unskillful management. Not at all. The only thing that moves society structurally is social struggle. And it seems to me that in my case, to leave is to fight. By leaving this industry for good, I want to take part in another world, in another cinema. Wow. So we had covered the Roman Polanski issue and the, 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 his career issues, obviously, during the Me Too movement in 2017. And just to bring you guys back to a few facts, these are facts about Roman Polanski. He fled the United States after pleading guilty to, quote, unlawful sex with a minor. This girl was 13 years old at a photo shoot. He was photographing her. That is not a rumor. That is not hearsay. He pleaded guilty in a court of law, and then he fled, to, fled the country to avoid his sentence. Roman Polanski is a rapist, period. End of story. Since then, he's been accused of raping four additional women uh, since that 1977 case, and here are the ages of... Of, of, of three of those women, 16, 15, and 10 years old. Roman Polanski won Best Director at the French Caesar Awards in 2020. He was, he, he's been an Oscars consideration, too. Didn't he win the Oscar for The Pianist, or am I misremembering? Yeah, he was, he was uh, I believe so. I can't remember off the top of my head, but obviously Adrian up, Brody right. won Best Actor. I don't want to lump yeah. his name into this, but look at Right. All of this, but the, the point is, he's—I mean, he's—he's he's still been celebrated as a filmmaker stateside, even though he's, you know, a, a, a convicted rapist stateside. He, and he's found a port of harbor in France in the French film industry, which is not unique to him. Ger Gerard Depardieu, Woody yeah. Allen—they've all he did win. He did win for the pianist, by the way. Yeah, they've all been. They've all been harbored by the French film industry. And this is, this is one of the reasons why we've gone 15 rounds with French film and with Cannes and with... I mean, look at... Johnny Depp's going to be the lead in the film that opens the Cannes Film Festival this year. And, and my win, I have a, a ton of respect for her as a filmmaker, but Jesus, you know, why are we, why are we forced to, to watch these men accused of such terrible things and it's obviously a big industry-wide problem too. Not just out—I mean, outside of of our issues with Cannes and, and the French cinema, but I mean, Depp just got Al Pacino to agree to star in his what's going to be his directorial debut. Like, there's no for as much good as been done by like you know Me Too and 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 the comeuppance in the 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 Twitter world, the social media world for holding some of these monsters accountable. It's not you know. 
cancel culture isn't real, man. It's just not. It right. never has been. Yeah, the, all the accusations of witch hunts. I mean, these are facts in, uh, in a court of law in regards to Polanski. If you look at the Woody Allen case, some of those are disgusting as well. Yeah. And he got away with what he got away with for 30, you know, 30 years after. Polanski for 50 years after. Uh, I mean, Cosby's not in jail right now, for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I know that's that's far afield. No, from, you're right. From, it, you it, it was a reckoning in the United States film industry. We don't know to the extent that the leadership changed. We don't know these things. We're not able to study these macro problems, but we know some of the leadership changed. The French film industry, not enough of the leadership has changed. Yeah, and Enel is is drawing just some some very obvious conclusions here uh, and the fact that she is stopping her career in protest of them is is a tragedy number one because like i said she's one of my favorite actors yeah but think about the strength i mean let's focus on her as the hero of this story the strength it must take for her to actually like say you know this is the way i fight i'm going to rob the industry of cinema the art of cinema of all my talents and like you've said i mean one of the best actresses going today bar none she is such a talent and having no qualms about it like i'm going to go do something else i'm going to create cinema in a different venue man that takes some gumption and audacity good for her if she followed up portrait of a lady on fire and her last five years with another you know set of films she'd probably mm-hmm. be oscar nominated by right. now as an actor she you know if, if, if you can only project so much but we, we see this happen all the time based on the level of her performance in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The fact that she's retired is dismaying. And like you said, it's heroic, the fact that she's making this stand. So the least we could do is cover it on this show. Uh, I, I wanted to do that, and I, I am upset anew that uh, she stopped and she's had to stop. We're going to move into the many developments of the writer's strike here, Mike. So, again, we're going to keep our serious tone here because the last time we discussed the strike, we covered the sticking points and the negotiations and the stakes. Go back an episode or two, excuse me, before our Guardians uh, geek out uh, where we kind of covered a lot of the, the content here. But we outlined what those stakes are, and the, the alliance of studios really didn't snap back. They kind of, to an degree snap back a little bit one of the their biggest moves was to talk about uh, how their showrunners needed to continue working despite the fact that their showrunners are also writers despite the fact that their showrunner writers need to write on set because this is normal how many productions stories have we covered mike in the history of our podcast where a lot of writing is being on set done on set how many production stories during the last writer strike have we covered like like uh, Quantum of Solace, where what a disaster that was. After Scream three, yeah, Scream three. So, uh, I, it, but it doesn't seem. I mean, to, to the, the leader of Andor, there, Dan. Uh, it was like Dan Gilroy, I believe. Yep. Um, it, it, he's the first one I've seen to, to kind of take that stand and say that's not happening. I mean, he's he's already said he's not going to do it. He's he's thrown his hat in the ring there, and I, I there was a uh, supposed meeting of a couple of these writer producers that was supposed to happen behind closed doors, where they were going to like kind of plan their path forward through this because it was Disney who first came out and said, you need to, you know, no matter what you're doing as a writer, if you're a producer, we expect you to work and be on set and your uh, jobs as a producer. 
Right. And WB soon followed suit. And so the writer-producers that were affected by this have kind of uh, supposedly all met, and Dan Gilroy was the first to say, I'm not doing it. Uh, and I expect that's the tenor of the response thus far has, has been, and somebody even said this, I forget who, but the quote was, you know, we can't play nice with one side of this and then be staunchly against them on the other side. It's impossible for us to do. And it is impossible for them to do. And, th- I mean, it's ridiculous for Disney and WB to even lay that edict down as to be their expectation. So I'm... I'm looking at this smattering of stories and I'm h- hoping like you that it will become total war and they'll come to resolutions that it's are fair. Getting that point. I, I don't think it's there yet though, Mike. It's I mean, not. we've seen writers picketing in New York and LA. I mean, we could list 50 major celebrities, uh, actors, Jennifer Coolidge, Brian Tyree Henry, two of, you know, a hundred names or whatever, you know, actor writers like Quinta Brunson and Brent, Brett Goldstein, Pete uh, Davidson buying everyone pizza. Writer directors like Nolan and Prince Bythewood, comedians, late night hosts. Yeah, they're buying food trucks, the late night hosts for all the picketers. Somebody got Imagine Dragons to play. <laughs> we could go on and on. A lot of these are cool stories. However, we 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 know of a lot of major productions that are still going, that are still shooting. Amazon's Lord of the Rings. Game of Thrones' show, House of the Dragon, two of the biggest ones that are still shooting. They wrote all they wrote before the productions, and they're still still shooting now. Blade, Daredevil, Andor, Stranger Things, and yes, the other games of Game of Thrones show, The Hedge Knight, uh, where George R. R. Martin made a stand there. They have ceased production at whatever stage they're at. But I'm guessing a lot of the business is still going on as usual, and... This is kind of just the initial volley. The DGA is now negotiating. There's the story. The SAG-AFTRA negotiations are looming, right? So this is this is a whole new set of economics brought on by the streaming era. Every single labor organization needs to cut new deals with the studios. The studios have to do this. Is this going to be the tipping point, this writer's strike, that makes all of this negotiation happen? And will it become total war? Will the industry just halt production as at, at large? Are you seeing it going in that direction? Or do we think that there's going to be divide, division and, and therefore conquering by the studios? So the guilds have a history of not playing so nicely with each other, uh, the separate guilds. Uh, they are at least being let's if you want to sugarcoat it at least being fiercely independent of one another um what's happened this time around and a, a reason some of these productions have been shut down is that uh, other guilds uh DGA members IATSE members etc have straight out refused to cross picket lines and because they've ref- I mean I, there was something on TikTok where there was a four person picket line in New York in front of one of the productions it might have been for Daredevil as a matter of fact and uh, the the I think it was the IATSE members were all there. They just refused to cross the picket line that was going because they are. I mean, this is the power of unions. Unions don't want to cross unions when one union is on strike there. So there is this falling in line this time around of all these guilds having each other's backs. And because there is such a explosion of content, you have so many more writer producers or writer directors or writer whatevers this time around that are part of multiple guilds that I think there is more of a benevolence between guilds. And that was shown in the fact that there was a uh, a meeting for the WGA, which was kind of a, a pep rally of sorts, that had representation from pretty much every other major guild in Hollywood. I mean, the DGA was there, the SAG representation was there, the, the, the Producers Guild or uh, uh, 
PGA members were there, and uh, I think our art direction members were get there. Like there was there was mm-hmm. representatives from all these other guilds, which was kind of a uniqueness that hasn't been th- done there before. You add to that what you just said: the fact that there are the a- AMPTP has other negotiations coming up with other major guilds. They just had an agreement with the DGA to not talk to the press during their negotiations because there is a negotiation ongoing with the DGA, which may lead to another work stoppage, etc. I keep referencing Led Zeppelin because this is like a levy situation to me. Like, mm-hmm. there's a bending that's going on, and at sooner or later, I do think those levies are going to break. And when they break through, that's when the studios are going to have to say, "God damn it, they've stopped all these productions. We're at this point where we need people to get back to work because we need more content in our in our chambers here." We're going to have to give them some of what they want. And again, what the WGA is asking for is not outlandish by any means. They're asking basically to be paid for their streaming residuals, what they've always been paid for cable residuals. Yes. And the one... Amongst other things, I should say. Yes. The one area, though, I see where the studios are kind of struggling and they're... Well, it's, it's very obvious that the streaming industry over leverage themselves they are not profitable yet overall that's just the facts of the matter disney sure. plus not profitable yet even though zasloff says hbo max should be profitable by by the end of the year not profitable yet and and it's because they're over leveraged it's because they paid 500 million for the rights to south park you know hundreds right. of millions for the rights to friends and they they completely spent far too much on content uh, at every level, Netflix went in debt, even though, I mean, their economics are probably the most profitable. They can weather a certain storm, these studios. They can weather a certain amount of time. They can weather a certain amount of stoppages, work stoppages. But this is not the ideal time for the studios either. We have just seen a recovery since the pandemic. The box office is recovering. The, the streamers are figuring out the business. They're incorporating ad advertising. They are figuring. They're balancing their books. I mean, we've seen some brutal, you know, examples of this, especially from the WB areas of of the world of the entertainment world. Michael, I wonder if this is the perfect time for Total War from all the guilds to get to this point where they have to cut deals. These studios. They have to cut deals with their talent, with their people, and bring them in more on the profits of streaming, which are going to come. They're going to figure this out because they got too much stuff. They got too many subscribers, 200-something million subscribers at $20 a month. Those economics are going to finally work. They, they have been working for Netflix, and they're going to finally have to work for, for the talent. Uh, you know, going into this, especially with the bump that they're going to see in advertising. It's a tough sell to say uh, for the studios to say, oh, we're not profitable yet. Our streamers aren't profitable yet. So how can we share in profits or how can we share in revenue when, you know, you're the CEO of these companies are making 50, 100 million dollars a year like you have money? <laughs> well, their argument is that, you know, the the big money deals for the top writers are also in that range. That's their argument. And That's I great. Right. But the, the problem is here, like, it seems like the pipeline for the content is in, in jeopardy, but the pipeline for the future of the business is also in jeopardy. Writers like Mike, uh, Michael Schur just did a whole interview with Bellany today about if the studios get their way 
and they go to mini rooms and they take away the writer's room and ultimately what they do is they take take away the learning curve and they take away the system of apprentice le- apprenticeship that Hollywood's always been based on especially from a writer's point of view like Michael Schur was he was a you know a, an 18th writer right. on shows X Y and Z when he yep. was coming up and he was on set during production learning from the older writers and learning from the showrunners and learning how sets work and function yeah and if you listen to the writers too it's it's obvious that a lot of these studios and whoever's running the the on sets are just i mean there is such a detachment between what writers actually do for productions versus what the the view from the studios of what writers do for productions is because the studios pitched that oh if writers want to be on set we can just have a lottery system and we can uh, pull a name at random from the writer's room. That writer we pull at random can be on set during our shoots if they want, the writers want representation. And, and not only that, but that the winner of that lottery, they'll be an unpaid intern. So they won't be paid for being on set for that day, but they'll get to be on set, even though by lottery it could be the 6th, 7th, 12th writer who gets their name pulled, not one of the top ones that runs the show. It's, so, it's just ridiculous, some of the proposals from the studios. How volatile Wall Street is, I understand that the studios have to be a little more conservative. I understand that the, the need for profits and to, to, to honor their shareholders with X amount of profits, ASAFP, is, 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 is a necessary evil of the business right now. Again, because Wall Street is so volatile. People want to protect themselves, and the gambler's mentality of Wall Street makes things even worse when people can short everything. And It's a nightmare. It's dumb money personified. We're going to see that movie later in the year, right? Mm-hmm. So I get why studios are slow playing this. However, however, they're hoarding a lot of profits with the current business structure. Oh, you think? They have to. They have to make deals with all of their talent because their talent is is the sole reason they make the money. It's that I mean, simple. if you if like we, I cite Zaslav's pay and Iger's pay and all the the head CEOs pays, but like those are the guys at the top of the food chain. Right. The people right below them are also making millions upon millions of dollars. Like there's the executive function of studios, and I yes, a lot of it is stock based, and you can't do much about that. I mean, you could, but they won't. But like. The, the executive branch of studios are, like, if you took 5%, if they took a 5% dip across the board executive-wise from the board, uh, this strike is over, and the writers get more than what they asked for, probably. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious, but uh, I, I just wonder what it's going to take. What is it going to take for them to come to the negotiation table? Is it, is it going to take six months of escalation? Because that would be a problem for everybody. Or is oh, the it gonna... more these, the more the big, the bigger productions get shut down by these picket lines, and again, I mean, this is the the power of unions cannot be undersold here, right. and this is why I will never understand why people are against unions in this country because it gives the little guy such a voice. The fact that you have union representation across the board, and one union refuses to cross the picket line of another union who is picketing and upset about unfair labor practices and wages, that's such a huge win for writers and pre WGA members and the little guy in this fight. People don't think they're the little guy on bo- on both sides of the aisle. They're just, I mean, they're on, yeah, they're they on think their way they're to the, the CEO. Bi- yeah. Right. 
they think and then they're cowering for whatever they're it's you're right it's a whole complex i think because it's, it's absurd because wanting to please the bosses who are making billions while you make those boots aren't going to lick themselves you know right it's, it makes no sense it makes no sense and they, they they look down on the people that are living paycheck to paycheck like they couldn't figure it out when i, I just i'm offended by the whole issue i'm, I'm aggravated by the whole issue and yeah. cynical about the i whole mean issue i i myself. think look i think a lot of people who I would guess the heavy, heavy majority of people who are in the know on these types of issues get upset the same way. But it, you, you said it last episode. This is a microcosm for the problems in our country and for yep. the economy of our country. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, I'm, I'm not a crazy one, you know, uh, 99 percenter necessarily, because I think that gets a little, little uh, out of hand. Eat the rich. Eat them. Eat them all. <laughs> but that's the truth. You have hundreds of people making all of the money, making yep. mo- making the vast majority of the money, and then splitting up. But this is nothing new to history. Nothing new to history. The problem no, is... No, but it also does lead to <laughs> yeah, the, violence. But, but the problem is, when they have all the power, they can put the pressure on you not to give you... It's like the Peter Griffin thing. Well, kind of... You know, the Pretoria, remember that episode Mm -hmm. of Family Mm -hmm. Guy? Well, can I have this pen? Oh, you mean this pen that I'm (laughs) writing with right now? No. (laughs) No, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's, that's, it it is, there are obvious parallels between the issues going on with the WGA right now and the issue, some of the issues anyway, in this country uh, of the financial uh, imbalances, let's call them. Alrighty, I was, uh, and you know, I, we deleted a bunch of stories about the fourth quarter earnings. You know, AMC did well, did better. They're, the movie theaters are getting back on track. AMC Plus, the subs are going down. So streaming's dealing with some things too. HBO Max says they're going to be profitable, et cetera, et cetera. Disney Plus and Hulu are going to combine. We're, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing a lot of movement in regards to the industry at, at a macro level. So that's going to change. But I, I don't feel ready to talk about all those issues now necessarily. I did want to talk about the movie calendar, maybe to take a step more towards our area of expertise, because we're, we're seeing some unique Oscar plays kind of put their flags in the ground. Number one, this is not that, but the Please Don't Destroy movie with Judd Apatow, that went from peacock or excuse me that went from in theaters in august to peacock in november and then the movie strays which was a june comedy theatrical play moved to the please don't destroy date on august 18th of this summer that's what august should be to me isn't it august should be the raunchy comedy month isn't it interesting though like peacock seems to be doing better they have now gone back to an exclusive movie play and peacock Seems to be doing better both on movies after an 18-day window for many of them, of them, and for a couple series that have finally, you know, taken off with mm-hmm. the Ryan Johnson series, A Poker Face, etc. And uh, uh, Bupkis, I almost called it Bupkis. Bupkis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not Blumpkin. Not Blumpkin. No, very different. That's a silly urban uh, <laughs> dictionary term that we all looked up 20 years ago. <laughs> 
Would have been a better name for the Pete Davidson show, let's be honest. Don't know if Joe Pesci would have signed on, but would have been a better name. Right, okay. So Peacock, on its way up, making moves, they're starting to figure it out. Uh, Poor Things. We're looking at Poor Things, which is a searchlight play. A lot of searchlight plays have gone to Hulu. Poor Things could be an Oscar contender. Yorgos Lanthimos, Emma Stone, added to September 8th, though, Michael. September Mm. being a very popular month for your shit list mm, early september too i'm not crazy about that sony's Col- or columbia pictures is uh, the book of clarence that was given a september 22nd release date and the mm. ethan cohen film drive away dolls again we've previewed the hell out of all three of those from focus features as well on september 22nd late september i'm not a fan of that <laughs> All right, let's look at some October Any, any September date. That's the joke there. <laughs> Truthfully, it, September hasn't been the most lucrative or the most fruitful month for Oscar contenders. Gold Finch. <laughs> October. We have Dumb Money, October 20th. Excited. This is Craig Gillespie, the GameStop drama or comedy or dramedy, Seth Rogen, Sebastian Sand, Pete Davidson, uh, Shailene Woodley, etc. High hopes for that one. Pain Hustlers. I had heard that Pain Hustlers... About, you know, the medical marketing industry, Emily Blunt, Chris Evans, Catherine O'Hara. That was not necessarily looked at as the biggest Oscar play, but here it gets that, the Oscar date. supposed to be a comedy. October 27th. Yeah. On Netflix. I mean, it, could, it has, the, it has the, the subject matter to be a serious movie, obviously. A, a, a dope sick type thing with some... I think it's uh, more comedy, yeah. but Yeah, but yeah. All right. The Killer. This is the Fassbender Fincher film. Number one, it's two hours and 45 minutes long. I don't that know doesn't if, surprise me, actually. But it's also coming out on November 10th. Does that do anything for you? I'm excited about that. I'm happy it's uh, squarely in the holiday oscar release window there, but not necessarily on like a Thanksgiving week play. The Holdovers, also November 10th. This was the... Uh, the movie that we've talked about at length in our preview series. A lot of issues with the director, Alexander Payne, Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph. Let's not take it out on them. Movie about uh, basically staying at school during a Christmas break and the professors and the kids, a boarding school thing. I don't know. It's a dramedy. November 10th. It was supposed to be Oscar-y. Good release date for you? That's not a Netflix play, is it? No, I, I forget if it's Focus or Searchlight. It's one okay. of those... You know, because I was going to say, I mean, if that, I, I didn't think it was Netflix, but if it was, putting that out the same day as the killer would make no sense. But yeah, so one the, of those the fact that it's going to be a theatrical release, I'm okay with. Artisan plays, anyway, yeah. but that that could go either way in terms of Oscars. So, some some confirmations on what we thought would contend with Dumb Money and the hold, at least the, the killer for you, and, and then some curious decisions with the holder holdovers and pain hustlers. You and have then, reservations about Fincher, huh? But look at. I have reservations just based on the kind of the assassin story. Is this? Okay. I mean, we remember that George Clooney assassin movie, like the, the George the, Clooney assassin movie. The American, the good American, not a good American. The I forget George Clooney assassin movie. Was it the Good American or whatever? It was a good movie, but it just wasn't like assassin movies. Don't get all the Oscars necessarily. George Clooney assassin, the one with the Gong Show host, not Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, even though. I forget if that was a screenplay nominee. Anyway. Ides of March? Nope. Here we go. Here we go. 
Oh, it was just called The American. The American. Okay, uh, that's not one I'm familiar with. Solid movie. Great chase throughout the streets of this village in Europe. I love that chase scene. Anyway, not an Oscar movie, unfortunately, right? So, I don't know. Is the killer that, or is the killer Fincher's coup de gras? I... It, just give me good Fincher. We're due. We're due for another all-timer. I'm rooting for it as well. November 10th is... Anyway, we're, we're taking too long in the story. It, it was it was interesting. I have a question for you. Uh, let yeah. me run this down. Evil Dead Rise spent 18 days in theaters, Michael, made 115 million or 116 million and counting in those 18 days on a $19 million budget. Very profitable. 50 yeah. something million dollars in profits. This was originally slated for an HBO Max release. They moved it, WB moved it to a theatrical release. It paid off for everybody involved. This movie made $6 million, was in third in terms of the rankings at the box office last week behind Guardians, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Why, in a week where, yes, you got four or five new releases, but nothing that's going to really impede on their horror movie audience, and and that on that turf... Why would you not leave it in theaters exclusively for another week or two to get the descending box office of at least 10 to 12 million if you left it in there for another 14 days? Mm. To me, this is an eye-opening story on what they expect to make on PVOD because we've always wondered about what those numbers are. We don't know those numbers. They must know that they're going to make well beyond that $12 million on PVOD. They must know that that 1999 price point is still very worthwhile to get it into that window ASAFP. And they must also have some kind of plan to put Evil Dead Rise on HBO Max. And that must still be meaningful to Zasloff, despite what he had said about not wanting, you know original movies on HBO Max. Not creating content specifically for the streamer. Uh, it could be all those. It could also be that they just had no faith in this being a moneymaker in theaters, and it took them by surprise. Because you have these contracts done... I mean, the, the theatrical window is set prior to release, right? They moved and, it to theatrical. Right. Right. But by, but by putting it in theaters, they had to have told the... the the theater chains that were putting it, I mean, it's scheduled to go on PVOD after an 18-day run. Like, the theaters have to sign up for that, I would think, beforehand. I, I, this is the stuff I want to interview insiders about. I don't yeah. really want to interview <laughs> the actors about, what, what was it like working on set for them? I mean, people do that beautifully. That, that's not you and me. We don't want to do that. But right. I want to interview like a, like a suit who knows the macroeconomics on this and who could tell me why... This is this has happened because you would think they would just want to milk that release for longer because it's been profitable. Yeah, it would not surprise me to learn that. Look, I'm not trying to I'm trying to not speak ill like the decision makers at WB have been a little short sighted when it comes to some predictions lately. But so you think they've locked into whatever deal they started with. And this was going to be an 18-day theatrical release, no matter yes. what happened. That's what you think. Yes. And I, maybe maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. I have no idea. That, but I mean, it just I, seems it's bizarre. Just, 
I just don't. I, I mean, I, I think the, the only reason they would have done that is if they didn't think this was going to be a huge moneymaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, t- this getting to a hundred million dollars is a big deal. But like we've talked about how air is a good moneymaker, even though that was another thing that Amazon was supposed to put, you know, because test screening, it did so well in test screenings. Amazon decided not to just put it on Prime, but to put it in theaters. And it's going to do I don't know what it's up to now, but I don't think it's going to do a hundred million. Right. So air has made eighty five million worldwide. And obviously the budget was around ninety million, but we've talked about how Amazon might be cool with that because A, it's still thirty-five more than the marketing budget, and B, they feel like they've built up a lot of you know recognition for their movie from the theatrical run. They've built up a lot of you know they've done brand building essentially for when they right. put it on streaming, and now Air is going to be a featured streaming release tonight, or last night for you guys. We love the movie. It's it's going to do very well on Amazon Prime. And is that the case for Evil Dead Rise on Max? Is that the case for... And I would think horror has to play well on home video, too. Right. Is that the case for these streaming films and for these streaming economics? The problem is, Evil Dead Rise was just a success. That was just a theatrical success. Air is clearly not, but however, Air is also one of those where they bought out the rights from the beginning in perpetuity. Like they spent $140 million on Air ultimately so that Ben Affleck doesn't own a per- percentage of Air. What do you think the odds are that Zaslov would talk to us? <laughs> <laughs> After all the bashing I've done hey, uh, Mr. The uh, Jeffrey Bezos. Can we get Jeffrey Bezos? Can we get. <laughs> Can we get your boy there? What's his name? Oh, Jesus, please. Jeffrey Who? Bezos, singer. What? Bo Burnham. Oh, Bo Burnham. Can we get Bo Burnham <laughs> to play Jeffrey Bezos? Yes. And interview yes. him about this? I don't think that's asking a lot, to be honest with you. I, I think agree. that's fair. I yeah. agree. So we've, let's, we've, let's, we're big enough for that. Let's now. make that happen. All right. <laughs> Oscar trailers where, look, we have by our de- own decree, we, ha- we will only review the most obvious oscar yes. movie trailers mm-hmm. here to forthwith of course so let us start with this surefire contender meg to the trench give it best picture <laughs> <laughs> michael i did not know that the t-rexes tyrannosaurus rexes fished in the ocean yeah yeah they're big fishermen big fishermen <laughs> and i didn't know that the megs these giant sharks waited for said t-rexes fishing in the ocean in the in the lower depths, to so that they can pounce on them. <laughs> At the end of a Russian doll montage of prehistoric life eating other prehistoric life, <laughs> they did a good job setting this up to make you think it was Jurassic Park, right? Yeah, I, I mean it's a fun trailer. I mean, look, Jason Statham cannot leg press a a, a prehistoric shark. <laughs> can we can we can we say that? Like, if I were to ask you. What was the last non-action movie Jason Statham was in? <laughs> what year it came out? What would you say? It would be Spy. That, but that was still an action. But it was yes, just action. Spy was spoof. still an action movie. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen Operation Fortune Ruse de Gu- <laughs> Is that an action movie? I'm guessing it is. Yes, it is. That's the one that just came out, right? Yeah. The man makes action movies. Gerard Butler. Yeah. What's the non? What's the last non-action movie he's done? Uh, Gerard Butler did some rom-coms early in his day. Yeah. You know? No, uh, Jason Statham. How about uh, Nomeo and Juliet in 2011, <laughs> where he lent his voice to it? 
There we go. <laughs> That's the last time Jason Statham did not. I mean, who's the bigger action star, you think, between him and The Rock? It's got to be The Rock, you would think, but maybe not. I would think it's The Rock, too, but I don't know. Like, Statham only does these movies. He only does them. Anyway, we had uh, Bellany's guest on the town. I'm citing this guy's podcast for the second time, begrudgingly, because he's better than us. But (laughs) anyway, whoever the expert was, forgive me, said that he thought Meg to the Trench was going to be the sneaky contender for, like, billion-dollar overperformance at this year's summer box office. And I looked at that, and I'm like, what, a billion dollars for Meg 2, The Trench? And then Meg 1 did $530 million worldwide. Yeah, I mean, okay, and 530 is great, but there's a huge chasm between <laughs> $530 million worldwide and becoming the 55th film in history to be a billion-dollar moneymaker, Meg 2, The Trench. Well, what would, what would be the over-under you'd put for Meg 2, The Trench? Oscar nominations and box office, please. Go ahead. <laughs> Oscar nominations, 11 and a half. Uh, I, 400- really? So you don't think it's... I don't know. I mean, if it goes over 500, am I going to be shocked? No. If it does over like 800, will I be shocked? Yes. Okay. <laughs> what about you? I mean, am I, am I crazy? I don't... I would probably put 600 million, but I, yeah. if I'm just, I'm just guessing like you are, I don't know. I am much more, more intrigued. And Colby Mack made this point too, and I totally agree with him. I am much more intrigued to see this after watching the trailer than I was to see any Jurassic World movie after seeing those trailers. Well, we're going to see Meg to the Trench. We're probably doing a film study on it, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? We're nothing if not hypocrites here. The Deep Blue Sea homage. I, in this I can't trailer wait was great. for this movie. It looks awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> poor things. Poor things. Yorgos Lanthimos, Emma Stone. Mark Ruffalo, etc., Willem Dafoe. This felt like Yorgos Lanthimos doing his impersonation of Wes Anderson. Or am it's, I crazy? It's a like 30-second teaser, and I was going to type the exact same thing. I watched the trailer <laughs> first, and then I came to this to write it before reading any copy you wrote, and I was going to put, this is Yorgos doing Wes Anderson. It's exactly the, the feeling I got from it, too. It's this bizarre production design that actually starts out as like this Victorian era motif thing. I, I'm not. This is not my strong suit. This is why I'm not a critic. Oh yes, it is. They're wearing dresses and fifiness. <laughs> There's fifiness, <laughs> but it's also like this Frankenstein story of she was dead and she's brought back to life. We get all these, you know, views of these scientists. I think Mark Ruffalo is is one of them, but I'm not sure. Willem Dafoe is definitely one of them. Rami Youssef seems to be one of them. And we get her gallivanting around these settings that seemed like they're from the past, and yet we have flying cars and boats and whatever. Do you think it's like that that old conspiracy theory about how, like, time travel is cyclical and, like, 5,000 B.C., there were flying cars and everything, and then the Big Bang killed all of that, and then we had to start off from scratch. (laughs) Or, (laughs) this is not good improv. Yes, and. Or, (laughs) this is steampunk? Is this steampunk? What's steampunk? Is this steampunk? I think everything is steampunk. (laughs) This might be steampunk. I'll say this is steampunk. We might finally understand steampunk. Uh, I'm into Flamin' Hot. That looks like a fun movie. 
from Ava Longoria, by the fine. way. Fine. Fine. It might all be lies. <laughs> Is it good bad good hour bad owl? <laughs> Whatever. I, I, I like chips. I, like, I won't see that movie. <laughs> I like snackaroos. Oppenheimer, Michael. We got the big the big ticket item here was the second trailer for Oppenheimer, which uh, I hate myself for liking. Because when you rewatch this trailer, number one, there's there's like a reprisal of the that that what was that movie with Florence Pugh and Harry Styles and all the sex <laughs> that I thought was gonna win Best Picture that I'm bitter about. Don't uh, worry, big, darling. Big. <laughs> they basically take that premise, and then they're like, "Oh, we have to have the families there, but this is the good swerve, right? We don't have the bad swerve. We don't have the the the, the knucklehead swerve. We have the good swerve. Where are you saying that there's a chance that when we hit that button, we destroy the world? So it's a meaningful <laughs> little thing here that's happening." Creating yeah. the atomic bond, right? But but the, just listen to the sound bites. This is a matter of life and death. I can perform this miracle. The world will remember this day. Our work here will achieve a peace that mankind has never seen. <laughs> and how about this one? You have given mankind the power to destroy itself, and the world is not prepared. Yeah, talk about singing the high notes, huh? Christopher Nolan's going for it here. What is the script? Grandiose. Like this dot, like we've seen Anthony Hopkins have to handle some just, just vomit drafts of exposition that were never edited because it's Anthony Hopkins. He can handle it. Matt Damon seems to be doing that role nowadays. Like he did that in air. He carried some pretty on the nose lines in air. And ultimately, when we watched the film, we bought into it because it was blended together. It worked in context. Do you believe we're going to get that with this Nolan film? You know, I watched an interview of Affleck and Damon. uh, I don't know where it was, Variety or GQ or one of these things on YouTube. Where Mm. Affleck was asked, I'm not going to pretend I even remember the question. I don't remember the question, but Affleck (laughs) said something to the extent of, um, Matt Damon is basically a cheat card. Like he's always doing something to sell the scene. He's always doing something fascinating. So when in doubt, just shoot Matt. Hmm. So, I mean, and Affleck's obvious. I mean, yes, they're best friends and they grew up together and all that. But like Affleck's an established and esteemed director saying that about Matt Damon. So obviously there's something there to Damon's reactions and B-roll footage or backup footage where he's, he does have that in his repertoire now where he can be the guy to be relied on to do those types of things. So it wouldn't surprise me if that's the role he's going to nestle comfortably into. He did that in Ford v. Ferrari, too. Are you saying that pushing that button could end the world? <laughs> well, this is Look, I know you and I give like the biggest productions a lot of like red flags and a lot of shit when we review their trailers, but I, I think you're crazy if you don't watch this one and have some concerns. Because I do. Like, Killian Murphy is like borderline doing a Robin Williams impersonation the whole time for me. Like, what do you want? The chances are low. <laughs> Our work here will achieve a peace mankind has never seen. Like, relax, man. <laughs> Have another three packs of cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> He's borderline, like, spoofing some of these lines, which are not great written lines to begin with, which I, I hesitate in saying, but kind of believe. So... 
it, it, this movie is strange to me. Like, we picked it for a bunch of Oscars, and we mm-hmm. may be dumb for doing so. However, like, that was after a first trailer that was more of a teaser. This seems to be the trailer where you're getting the plot. It's spelled right. out for you. Did Christopher Nolan dumb this thing down and make it too clear? Like, this dialogue is not elevated. It's I mean, a double-edged I, sword. Like, you have to, though, right? You in have the same to. Way, in the same way the big short, you, I mean, I'm sure there's stock analysts out there who say this was terrible dialogue right. because it was way too simplified, but you have to. So they're going to they're gonna make it clear to us as we're following the movie. The, the problem is, like, all of the... Th- all of the thematic statements in this thing. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So I, I, I watched this. I'm like, this is a terrible trailer. This is this feels like a terrible script. This feels like a made-for-TV movie. Mm-hmm. And yet, the production values are next level. And I have this relationship with Christopher Nolan where when I think back to what Kenneth Branagh's lines were in Dunkirk, <laughs> when I think back to <laughs> almost everything said in The Dark Knight, I mean, when we re-review The Dark Knight for the Joker character study... We were like, oh, my God, this dialogue is not just elevated. It's preposterous. Nobody talks like this ever. You know what? Speaking of cheat code, does Hans do the music for this? Because maybe that's the cheat code. Maybe just put whatever dialogue to a Hans background music, and it'll come off with the, the necessary impact that it needs. This particular trailer was like the perfect fusion of you know the pool filter sound of the dark night and and the tick-tock of the clock score from dunkirk you had both of those like working he's not like innovating anything he's just combining his two best scores into this oppenheimer score no i i heard him i heard this time i heard it i heard the music in this one <laughs> i i i i have concerns like you do i am but I mean, if anyone's earned the benefit of the doubt, obviously it's Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Silly and murky. Maybe he's just going nuts. Maybe Tenet was like the tipping point where he's just like, I'm just going to stop making stories that make any sense to anyone. <laughs> well, I'm rooting for it, but I'm, I am a little concerned with the Oppenheimer trailer. Uh, let's make the case very quickly for a couple things. I watched a smattering of stuff. I want to shout out Attack of the Dock. This I have not from, had the chance to watch this yet. I'm glad you did. Chris Gore's atta- uh, Attack of the Show, DB Doosday, obviously Film Threat Manager now, he's your owner and operator and CEO, and came on our show a couple years ago. Really good guy, been been a mentor to us throughout the industry. So, look, I'm biased, and I'm also biased because I watched you know, Attack of the Show growing up and G4, I think a little less than you did, but I still watched it mm-hmm. when I was in school. I watched their coverage of E3, the the console wars of Comic-Con. And yeah, I mean, they have corny ass humor and I love it. And all the way, going all the way back, Olivia Munn, she was, you know, a, a teenage crush for me, for Christ's sake, sure. because of that show. Uh, the narrative momentum of chronicling all of this beautiful history is a joy to behold and it's unstoppable and chris gore understands how to tell a story and that's it, that's a huge point in his favor i genuinely hope chris gore keeps making movies that's this filmmaking thing fits him and i'm, I'm cool. so excited by it now there's some corniness here there's a, maybe a lull or two they kind of schmush you know like the negatives into the oh these are the negatives about g4 section that i didn't love so to, if i'm fair like this is like a b minus grade for me but okay. Attack of the Dock really gave me a lot of the nostalgic goods that I've been craving and 
to 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 be following this production going all the way back and to watch the the final product i'm i'm thrilled for him and i hope this makes him a ton of money and i hope that he makes another 10 movies i hope this is the birth of the chris gore career uh for for documentary filmmaking or for filmmaking in general go go watch attack of the doc guys it's 9.99 if you want to buy it it's uh 4.99 or something like that if you want to rent it and it's playing in select theaters i'm happy to hear all that that's awesome good good to hear i'm very excited to watch it it's waiting for me in my inbox Another movie that you should watch is The Lost King by Stephen Frears I will not with Sally this. Hawkins, <laughs> who plays a real-life real amateur reach searcher who figured out how to find the hidden remains of Richard III. Apparently, she accomplished this, Michael, based on the movie, because of undiagnosed schizophrenia. Oh, okay. Yay! <laughs> Look, I'm not a doctor. I'm certainly I'm certainly not an ethical man, but I don't think this is an appropriate way to view mental illness, is it? Uh-huh. She sees the Richard the Third King and talks to him, and this is how she finds him. And <laughs> it's not it's not like oh here she's this brilliant crack researcher, and what a what a brilliant woman, uh, and and we tell an underdog story about how she had to fight all the powers that be to unearth and, and basically, you know self uh, self generate an archaeological campaign to 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 dig this king up like she mm. found him <laughs> so uh, look what a what a stupid movie i grade this with a get your head out of your ass britain <laughs> d plus um I will not watch this. <laughs> Maybe archaeology isn't a good backdrop f- for a movie. Like, remember that uh, the Sir Sharon and Kate Winslet one a couple years ago? <laughs> oh, but the looks they gave each other <laughs> over the the dusting of that that stone, those fossils, the fossils. Right. Remember the fossils? Right. Yeah. God, Maybe, it's so hot. Maybe pick a different profession. <laughs> the fossils. What was that? Ammonite. Ammonite. That's it. Ammonite. It wasn't yeah, a bad Ammonite. movie. I actually kind of liked the movie. Everybody trashed it when uh-huh. it hit film festivals. So then I'm watching this movie. Like, this is a great performance. Saoirse Rona, Kate Winslet. Whatever. Um, the Artifice Girl. Sean Fennessy was bigging up this indie film uh, as, on his podcast, The Big Picture. VOD 599 sci-fi drama about creating an artificial intelligence to entrap child predators and save children. Oh, this is a cool ass premise, and it's a wild story. Now, this is, and I imagine everything goes exactly according to plan, and there's no problems with the AI whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this is how I like my indie films. Sometimes I like it lo-fi. I like it in a very theatrical way. Like a, it's a play. It's basically a three act play, and this movie is three scenes, three sequences. Three huge knockdown drag out arguments where the creators of the AI are trying to figure out how to best use the technology. It's a, it's a play, and I think there's some inspired ideas. I think there's some good performances, especially from the young actress Tatum Matthews. She was fantastic. I think it's a good script. They're exploring a few big ideas here, and they, you know they're they're basically going. To along with many of the tropes of AI over the years. So it's not like they're not breaking a ton of new ground, but I thought solid B all day for the art, the artifice girl. So it's a bunch of big 
dialogue heavy arguments. Well, it's not iRobot, Mike. It's by people in suits. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm making a point here. By people in suits arguing about the ethics of this new technology. How is this not Oppenheimer? <laughs> <laughs> Intriguing setups. <laughs> and, you know, juicy dialogue payoffs that did. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it seems like this might be a better script than Oppenheimer. The art, <laughs> the artifice girl, right. better script. Than Christopher Nolan's Artifice Oppenheim. Girl, better than Nolan. You heard it here uh, first. All right. Fast TV reviews. Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. Uh, we need to stop this podcast. Fantastic Fifi. Oh my God. Hi, Fifi. Hi, Why? Fifi. In many ways, it takes itself more seriously than the first two seasons of the main Bridgerton Who series, Michael. could possibly care? <laughs> Look, beyond, like my moral agreement with Shonda Rhimes here because I love her take on this story and I love okay. that she pushed the the author of Bridgerton series to write this story and then to she's all over adapting it like Queen Charlotte is like this moving backstory that I don't think typically works for most writers you got to be very skilled to make like these dueling narratives work on a screenwriting level like you have a if you're watching Bridgerton, the regular series, you kind of have to watch Queen Charlotte because these six episodes have a contemporary storyline about Qu Queen Charlotte in her contemporary state. So you have to watch this. I, I just thought, like, this is epic Netflix to me. This is a fast binge. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Queen Charlotte. Over how many days in a row did you watch it? I watched it tw in two sittings, three episodes a pop. It was great. Back-to-back -back days? Uh, I had a day in between because I had to okay. work late one night. Right. Anyway, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Barry, Ted Lasso. I'm loving each of those three now. I can say that now because... Even Ted Lasso because you weren't that high on it a couple of episodes. Ted Lasso had a three-episode slump. It was awful. It was the first right. three-episode slump. They've had bad episodes before, but to me it was a three-episode slump and it was awful. And I was questioning everything. Right. While the Knicks were losing to the Heat in the first four games, and Ted Lasso was not good. But Ted Lasso, episode nine, was awesome. And the Knicks just won game five. And these are intertwined, <laughs> these fates. And here, hereby, I am just in a great mood today, despite the fact that we dealt with a lot of heavy subject matter. And now yeah. I'm curious to know what you've been watching. Yeah, I, I don't have any movies on my. This is I, I've been doing too much this week. I've been watching a lot of NBA. Yes. Uh, if you by the time you listen to this, the Sixers have defeated it and wiped out the Celtics. Uh, I'll either be not heard from for quite some time, or in the headlines of the newspapers in a murderous rage. One of those two. I've also had to play Super Uncle this week. Yes. Uh, as I've spent a lot of time getting the children on and off and on the bus and off the bus and oh god, spending time with them and I. I, 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 kids, no, no more kids. Um, I, I, my, my free time to unwind, I've been playing uh, a, a video game called Hitman 3, which is great, which will also come in handy with my mm. skills that I'll need if Philly does knock out Boston by the time you hear this podcast. My, uh, my two big uh, entertainment offerings that I can give you in this section. I went down this rabbit hole on YouTube, mostly yesterday, of... Other A-listers telling stories about Jack Nicholson. Huh. And it's just entertaining stuff. And he, he, Jack is clearly one of those guys that, like, no matter how famous you are, you're not as famous as Jack Nicholson. Because to see, like, the Michael Keatons of the world and, like, Jimmy Kimmel's and, like, other people talk about Jack and just, like, 
they're clearly in awe of him and how cool he is. Kevin Pollack was actually just on the Rich Eisen show, which started this whole thing. He's got great stories about Jack on the set of A Few Good Men uh, and how he's like, you know, he does a great Jack impression himself, actually, as well. Kevin Pollack, actually, because Jack had to go and was done being paid for A Few Good Men, Kevin Pollack stepped in and because he was on set every day with Jack, memorized Jack's speech. So to get all the uh, the coverage shots, they had Kevin Pollack fill in and do a Jack impersonation <laughs> on the set of A Few Good Men giving the speech so they can get the reaction shots from Tom Cruise and oh the judge, and et cetera, et cetera. But like, Did he tell the, uh, the co- comedy story that he always tells about the elevator, Pollack? Because I think it's Pollack who tells it because they, they had like a big party for A Few Good Men, right? And they both Go got trashed. And the, uh, Kevin Pollack... Walked onto an elevator where movie star Jack Nicholson in sunglasses still looks great. And Kevin Pollack does not look great. He's like, he looks like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, as Kevin Pollack tells it. And he walks onto the elevator and Jack Nicholson goes, Kevin, you look how I feel. (laughs) That's where that's from. I didn't know that's that's where that quote was from. No, I didn't hear that story. I might be misremembering and making shit up right now. I'm pretty sure that's where it's from. But it's stories like that that are all (laughs) over. Like, everybody who has ever worked with Jack has a story about how he's just the cool... He is the coolest guy to ever live. Like, he's the greatest. It's so... Like, Adam Sandler has another one where he talks about sitting courtside at a Laker game with Jack one time, and the Lakers... This was when the Lakers were in their bad years, and how they were down 19 with, like, six minutes left. And Jack was like, I think it's time to go. And Sandler's like, well, no, I don't know. I mean, they're only down 19. He's like, well, they're down 19. There's six minutes left. They need to do more than three points a minute. We're going. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then he just got up and left. It's just like <laughs> shit like that. That's the coolest ever. Um, he was at the Laker games, right? Yeah, yeah. He made, his, he made his he made his return. Eighty six. God bless him. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, and I'll end on this. I have had a lifelong grudge against the Big Bang Theory. Um, okay. I've never liked it. I think it's the lowest hanging fruit in comedy. Oh no, uh, uh, not for me. TikTok, for whatever reason has been force-feeding me clips from the Big Bang Theory. I don't know how I got stuck in this algorithmic loop, but I've been getting all these clips from the Big Bang Theory to the point where, like, I literally found myself, like, two or three days ago watching a clip from it and enjoying it and then realizing what I was doing and being like, no, 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 no! And, like, having to, like, flip off. Like, I I think I want to watch some of the Big Bang Theory now because of TikTok. And if that's not the highest, like, remark of how influential and the hold that TikTok has on society, I've hated this show. I've watched it and yelled at it because I could not understand how it's, like, it's it's cathartic to get the anger out because I've never understood how people find it entertaining. And here I am, like a doofus, watching it and just being, like, enraptured with it on my stupid phone, on my on this app, watching it for three minutes at a time. I hate myself. You're like Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened and now... <laughs> It was unhardened. <laughs> Grinch's heart grew three sizes. That one TikTok. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, that's 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 it. I've been, I, I didn't have to, I didn't have time to put a movie on because I've been doing too much uncling basically this week. So my downtime has just been nonsense of scrolling TikTok, getting into the Big Bang Theory, and then going down YouTube rabbit holes. I will get back to the movie watching this week. Yes. Hopefully, in Let's between Celtics games because they're not going to be eliminated by the Sixers. Who knows, man? It's out of our control. 
these elimination scenarios. We can't, we can't, there's nothing we can do. That's the words of wisdom today. We can't. Oh, there's something I'm going to do. All we can do is run <laughs> root like hell. That's all we can do. Just have some pride, man. You, they're, they're not, this Philly team's not good. <laughs> they're kind of good. They got the MVP. Right, I'm not going to get you started, but <sighs> they're kind of good. <laughs> Guys. That's it for us. What matters, obviously, as always, is your thoughts. What do you think about any of the stories we had here? Have you found yourself reading the Little Mermaid previews? What do you think about the Disney live-action remakes in general? Uh, your thoughts on the serious topics of the WGA strike and the Adele Anel uh, quitting the business in response to all the uh, basically the French industry's embrace of predators uh want to know all that as well as your thoughts on the oppenheimer trailer anything else we talk about here in the mmo empire as always you can leave us those on our social medias we are mike mike and oscar on facebook and instagram at mm and oscar on twitter mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we are available wherever you do hear podcasts and for listening to us on either the apple podcast or spotify app if you appreciate what we do here if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review on those apps those help us out immensely thank you to everyone who has done so thus far michael you gave the words of wisdom uh we need to talk about what's coming next so maybe you can't uh maybe you can't reveal that but uh tell something to go out on i could say that we're going to do some oscar race checkpointing because the Cannes film festival is about to start and uh we got to do our job of timing the timers the applause timers Mm -hmm. and uh reviewing the reviewers on that it is a sacred duty uh sacred set of duties actually and we will we will we will duty the shit out of it um uh then we have uh we have film studies to dive into we did air we did uh, guardians of the galaxy volume three and we're going to add to that playlist as we go through the summer now we're going to choose some movies that we just can't avoid like facts x because <laughs> we just want to and then we're going to choose some oscar players like past lives so i think uh some surefire oscar players i would say uh some contenders in that regard so a lot still happening this summer stick with us uh we're gonna keep doing these new shows but uh we'll break off into some specials and and certainly some film studies as we go it's always fun mike there you go that is on the horizon for us uh guys when reality sucks you can watch fast x with us which we hope a lot (laughs) of you do do we will be here for that as always we are mike mike and oscar trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness we will see you all very soon see ya